Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 3rd, we are studying Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. When Jesus began his public ministry in Galilee at the end of Matthew chapter 4, the evangelist summarized it as a ministry of preaching and healing. We've heard his preaching for three chapters in a row now with the Sermon on the Mount. And having concluded that, St. Matthew now turns to tell us more about Jesus' ministry of healing in Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wergau. Pastor Wergau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Well, thanks for having me. So, Pastor Wergau, get us started with some context today. We're, we're going to move out of the words in red. We've, we've seen three straight chapters of all words in red. Now we're going to get a little bit more of a narrative. What's the context we need to know that's going to help us move into this new, new section here in Matthew? Yeah, Matthew kind of gives that context right away when he says he came down from the mountain. Of course, you put it nicely, what, what he was doing up there. A lot of red letters, a lot of teaching, which is, of course, essential and very important in the Sermon on the Mount. is huge. Uh, but now, as he comes down, we see kind of going from, from words to, to actions, if you will, uh, that it's, he's coming down to be among the people, uh, to be in the midst of them, even in the midst of, as we'll see, all the, the, this, the uncleanness and the sickness and, and, and even death itself. Um, but that's why he came, right? Uh, he came to, as we'll see here right at the end of the pericope, where, where Matthew really just ties it all together in a nice, neat bundle, that, that he came to take our illnesses and bear our diseases. And, and, and he starts that uh, when he comes down the mountain uh, to be among the people, just as, you know, he came down from heaven to, to the sinful world. Uh, he's not simply coming to, 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 to teach, but to, to do, to break into a, a sinful uh, fallen, broken creation, and to begin then through these miracles to, to restore that fallen creation, which we see then in part in these miracles, but we see ultimately then with his work upon the cross. Just real briefly here as a way of introduction to, and I imagine our conversation will lead us to talk about this further, but but what what is the relationship between Jesus' teaching and his healing. We talked a little bit about that back at the end of chapter 4, where that's how Jesus' ministry is summarized, and, and here again, we're, it's like we're returning to that. But but just briefly, give us a, a brief introduction as to the relationship between his teaching and his healing. Right. I think it kind of comes down to what we talk about a lot of times as uh, the offices of Christ, right? So, so he is a prophet in that he is uh, proclaiming that Word of God and speaking that Word of God as the very Word of God. Uh, but they're not empty words. And his word in, in particular, which we'll see here, is never an empty word. It's something that doesn't return void or anything like that. But when, when his word goes out, it bears fruit. Now, that fruit is in uh, simply the hearing of his teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, and such. But it's also, um, it bears fruit in, in actually accomplishing what it sets forth to do. That is, his words are performative. They, they, they do what they say. And so we'll see it here when, when he's performing these miracles 
uh, he does it uh, in most instances, and we'll see with the centurion that he does it with a, with a word. Uh, and so both go hand in hand, and they really are what the Messiah, what the promised one came, came to do, that, that he would, um, through his teaching and through his, through his um, miracles, point to, to who he is, and and what is his what is his work, if you will? What what did he come to accomplish? I don't know if that answered your question, or if you wanted to go a little bit more on that too. No, I, I think that's a good summary, and that that gives us a good way into this text. And I think we're going to bring some of those things out too. But I, I just as real quick to highlight what you said about the performative nature of Jesus' word that it accomplishes what he says. Here in, in chapter 8, very clearly, we will see him speak, and something quite visible is going to happen. Leprosy will be cured, a, a centurion's servant is going to be healed from a distance, which then, that, that very visible nature of Jesus' word in this instance, gives us confidence where what Jesus' word was doing in 5 through 7, the fruit there is perhaps a bit more invisible, but it's still bearing fruit, the fruit of faith that, that's being worked by the Spirit within the, the heart of those who believe. And so I think that's, that's a good connection as well. So with that, let's go ahead. There's, there's plenty of text to look at, and we can tease more of these ideas out as we, we go. But we're in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17 this morning. When he, that's Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. So, Pastor Wargo, as you said, Matthew sets the context for us. Jesus now comes down from the mountain, and he's got great crowds following him. So just briefly, this audience... It's been the disciples primarily that have been listening to the Sermon on the Mount. That's who Jesus is teaching. But there are these crowds who, I, I guess, are overhearing it, and, and now they're going to keep following. Is that the, the picture that Matthew's given us here? Yeah, I think what we guys we, we know the direct audience of the Sermon on the Mount right there in Matthew 5 is he speaks to his disciples, which really, the Sermon on the Mount is the sermon for, for the Church. 
And, but now as he kind of comes down, you're right. Perhaps these crowds are, are overhearing it. Perhaps they have some kind of an idea of who this Christ is. But the idea here is now that they're they're coming to him. Uh, and, and we'll see here in the crowd with the leper and the centurion, they're coming to these ones in particular, coming to him in, in faith. So uh, even in, in Matthew 4, uh, we had the great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, right? So here we have the crowds mentioned before the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus kind of famous spreading. They know that he is, is important and that he can, as, as we'll see here, he can do, do great things. Now, now, whether or not you know their faith is such that that they they trust him to be the Christ uh, is not explicit there. But we do have this crowd as kind of the backdrop backdrop, if you will, of Jesus' ministry. There's always this crowd, um, you know, distinct from the disciples, but yet these are the ones that are coming to him, and we'll see then that these are the ones from uh, that Jesus uh, heals and casts out demons and and such. So from this crowd, then, one man in particular distinguishes himself at first, it's, and, and Matthew draws attention to him, a leper came to him and knelt before him. So, Pastor Wurgau, we were saying before the, the program, you, you got to talk about leprosy the last time you were on with me in, in Luke 17. Here, give us, give us a back—what's going on here, this leper? Why is this—I was meant to say, behold, a leper? Right. I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, Matthew gives us this word, behold, right? And the behold word is—, is to draw attention. It's like, look, see, this is something important, something significant coming, coming to play. I mean, earlier he'd used it about, about um, angels, uh, the magi and the star. We had behold magi from the east. Behold, they saw the star. Uh, even at Jesus' baptism, behold, the heavens are open. All these important events. And now it, it almost seems kind of odd that now we have behold a leper, right? Uh, uh, it doesn't seem very significant that that this leper is coming coming to Jesus now. Um, yeah, just to kind of rehash, leprosy kind of is, is is more of a generic term really used in the scriptures to to denote several kinds of uh, diseases of the skin. Uh, but what's important for us to understand, especially with the backdrop of the Mosaic law and the Levitical law, uh, is the fact that the lepers were. Uh, ceremonially unclean. They were cut off from worship of God in the temple. They were cut off from the community. And I think and that's what the Mosaic Law, of course, uh, uh, speaks concerning it. And to a se- in, in a sense, too, they are um, also, I guess a good word to use is kind of when they're cut off from the community, they're really kind of this emblem of sin, this emblem of um, filth, and and you know they deserve it. You know they're getting you know they're getting their just desserts or whatnot. But so if you wanted to know what a sinner was, if you wanted to know what what an unclean person was, then you look to the leper, and and so it is very significant then that that, that our attention is drawn to this leper, especially as we're going to see him come to Jesus, uh, and he's going to become for that purpose of. Uh, cleansing. Again, that's an important word uh, in relationship to leprosy. The problem with the leper is that he is unclean, and he then believes in faith, comes to Christ to be made clean, so that his uncleanness will be taken from him. So how do we see, I mean, as you said earlier, not everyone in these crowds is going to come in what we would call saving faith, right, to Jesus, but there are some who Mm -hmm. do, why, why do you say that this leper comes to Jesus in faith? Right, exactly, because of what his request is, uh, and I think, too, how he addresses Jesus. Now, again, this kind of depends. Uh, this word that's used, Lord, 
is, is the word, uh, it's the vocative Kyrie, uh, which is where, you know, we get our, get our uh, hymn in the church, the Kyrie eleison. But um, and, and that word has a lot of, of, uh, of meaning, especially deep Old Testament meaning behind it, uh, and it's a confession of who this Jesus is. But even more explicitly, too, he calls him Lord, but then he also has this confession that this Lord, Christ, is able to um, cleanse him, something that he couldn't do himself, something that no man could do, but something that um, God could do. And so he, he comes to him and says, if you are, are willing, uh, you are able, you have the ability, the power, if you will, to, to, make me, to make me clean. And another instance, too, before, and I didn't mean to skip over this, before he even addresses Jesus or speaks to Jesus, we have this word that he, that this action that he does, and that is that he does reverence or he uh, falls down. This is a word for, for worship, like when the Magi worship the, the uh, infant Jesus. But it also uh, aptly describes um, the action of worship itself, that it involves the body, that involves him falling down uh, and doing reverence, I think is how uh, another translation of this is. He does reverence before Jesus. Again, his worship of Christ is, um, is, is shown forth in, in his body. Right, yeah, so and, and you're in, in the ESV, I just flipped back to chapter 2, it does describe the Magi, they fell down and worshipped him. Here, you could, you could translate that word, that this leper came to him and worshipped him. It, the, the posture right. is, is what's emphasized in the English translation, but I, I think, given the, what, what you've just laid out, to see this man worshipping Jesus is not a bad picture of what worship looks like, because that's, that's what worship is, is coming to Jesus— and receiving the gifts that he has to give, right? I mean, that this is a great picture of worship, I think. Right, and a great indication then also of of, of the leper's faith, right? Uh, that that he knows where the gifts come from, and which is really fascinating with his confession is that he says, uh, "You can, you are able to make me clean," and but then he also says, "If you if you will, right? Uh, if you are willing." Uh, if it is your will to do this, you can make me clean. Uh, so it is. It is kind of held in a, um, a in a condition, right? Uh, he knows he's able. The question is, will he have mercy? Will he heal this dirty leper? Mm, right. The the question is perhaps as we would phrase it today: What is God's will in this? And I, I appreciate you saying, "If you are willing." The ESV translate, "Lord, if you will," and Jesus says, "I will." And I think in at least when I hear that in English, you know, I'm thinking future tense. We often use the word will for mm-hmm. future tense. And and here that's it's not about the future tense, but it's about what is Jesus desire? What is what is what does he want to do? What is he going to do? That's so if you are right. willing or or Lord, if it is your will, is is the way I think we, we hear that better in English. So so the question is, Pastor Rogel, well well, what is God's will? Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's what we pray for in the in the Lord's Prayer, right? We pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, and it's important for us to understand what is this will of God. Now, on the one hand, God, God's will is uh, revealed and hidden, right? So there are the hidden things of God that we don't know, His hidden will, which is He has not told us, and, and that is not, you know, our place 
to, to delve into that hidden will of God because that results in, in speculation. And I don't think the leper is trying to delve into the hidden will of God. He's simply going in faith, actually, and, and I think there's more to the leper here, I think, that, than, than I don't think he's doubting. I think he is calling God up on his promises because I think he knows and he understands the will of God from how it's um, portrayed in the Old Testament or how it's portrayed in the scriptures. But that's, an, that's kind of an aside. But, but what do we know concerning the will of God? Well, we know his will in the law for sure. We know how he, what he desires of us, how he desires us at, for us to live in, in faith to him and in love to one another for sure. Uh, and that is God's will. Of course, it's a will that we as unclean sinners don't and, and cannot keep uh, perfectly, for sure. But so too do we know God's will as it's revealed in the Scripture in his, his, his gospel for us, his saving will for us. For example, like John six forty, where Jesus tells pretty explicitly, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or St. Paul tells Timothy, you know, in his epistle to Timothy, when he says, uh, it's the will of God that none should perish, but that all should have, uh, that all should um, uh, have eternal life. Should, should come to call, uh, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, there we know the will of God. Uh, and that's the will, that's the desire of Jesus. That's why he comes down, the, that's why he comes down the mountain. That's why he came to earth in the first place is to do his father's will, which him and the father are one. So it's his will too. And that is to, to have mercy on sinners uh, and, and to heal this leper. And, and ultimately though, then to uh, bear our uh, iniquities all the way to the cross, to bear, to take our illnesses and bear our diseases, as Isaiah said, which I, again, I think this is going to be a common theme that we come up with, come, come back to, and, and to take those, to the cross to lay down his life so that, as you know, uh, he tells us in John 6, that we look to him and have eternal life and are raised on the last day. I, you, you brought out a lot of things that I, I think are, are I very <laughs> important right there at the end, the, the, that we would be raised to life on the last day. When we think about Jesus' ministry of physical healing, uh, we have to talk about the resurrection, because that's where the physical healing finds its full fulfillment is there at the resurrection. I also think you brought out the Lord's prayer, the the prayer, you know, um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and I, I think you're right that the the leper is not it's not a it's not so much the condition that he's laying out or that there's doubt when he says if you're willing, but but rather he's I think he's been listening to the Sermon on the Mount, or he's, he's been overhearing it. Again, I, you know, it's, it's directed to the disciples, but you've got these crowds that come down immediately with him. So, so it's like he's been listening to the, you know, we're praying for God's will. Jesus has said, ask, seek, knock. He's talked about your father as, as one who loves to give good gifts to his children. And among those good gifts is, is daily bread, the needs of this life. And so he, he comes to Jesus saying, Lord, if these things, I've listened to you, <laughs> if this is your desire, then I know you're able, heal me, right? And and the the wonderful thing is that, in fact, the, the leper's faith is is right. Jesus is willing, He's mm -hmm. he, and Jesus cleanses him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, what again, what he says then. He says, I will be clean, right? It is my desire 
it is it is my will that you be clean. And then he and then he says it, but he doesn't just say it too. He reaches out and he and he touches the leper too, uh, which of course is of, of utmost significance. And now we know Jesus and his miracles doesn't always do the same thing to heal people. And, and I, it's really neat here in these three miracles that we do have kind of explicitly laid out. Uh, although he does a lot more kind of that we just throw onto the end there. Uh, but, you know, when we deal with the leper and the centurion and Peter's mother-in-law, he, he actually, as they're portrayed from the gospel, doing kind of doing the miracles each differently. So this one, he, he speaks and he, and he touches with the centurion. You know, he, he says, will I go or I will go. But the centurion says it, the word's enough, you know, and then with the mother-in-law, we'd have no words recorded. But we do know that he he touches her. So, uh, but back to the leper. You know, he, he the, the significance of 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 the leper and and touching the leper uh, is is the idea of the of the um, fact that Jesus was, uh, according to Levitical law, we would expect him to be making himself ceremonially unclean. And in a sense, yes. But it's even more than that. In that he is actually taking the uncleanliness of the leper, and then the leper is actually cleansed. Through that, uh, Kleinig's got a great quote here. Uh, this is from his Leviticus uh, commentary on this. Uh, when he, and he's talking about this text in particular, uh, but it, it's the idea here that, um, according to the Levitical law and such, that uh, this touching actually does something. So, so I'm going to quote him really quick, if you don't mind. Uh, the most remarkable feature of this story is that Jesus does not just speak the word that cleanses the unclean man but he actually reaches out and touches him. He, the Holy Messiah, takes on the impurity of the man whom he chose to cleanse. So I think that's just a great imagery about what Jesus is actually doing. And, and I think it's a great way for us to see that when Jesus is performing these miracles, it's, it actually costs him something to a certain, in a certain sense, that, that he's not just these aren't arbitrary things as if he just says it and it happens, but it actually, with what Isaiah says then at the end, it's actually costing him something. He's taking on the sin. He's taking on the infirmity uh, of this leper, and and the leper is left cleansed then. Very, very similar to what we usually preach when it comes to Jesus' baptism, that he goes into the waters of the Jordan, not because he has any sin of his own, but to go to the place where sinners go, in order to bear their sins for him, and now he's doing the same thing with diseases. Is that the picture? Yes, exactly, which is just the big picture that we have of why Christ came in the first place, right? He came—I love the Franzman hymn, I think it is, that says he came to breathe our poison to air, right? He came into a sinful, fallen creation to, to to be in the creation and to take our infirmities upon himself and to suffer— uh, what we have and continue to suffer. And then ultimately, though, for his point of suffering, it is to put an end to it in his dying for those sins and his resurrection from the dead. So in, instead of, well, nor, and this is, see, normally I think about, you know, in, in Levitical law, right, the, the uncleanness would spread from the unclean on to other clean things, and so it would just all be unclean. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think what, what we're saying is, is Jesus, yes, he is taking that uncleanness upon himself, and he's going to go and, and die and rise for that. But now, instead mm-hmm. of that unclean person remaining unclean, 
he Jesus own cleanliness, his his holiness has been given now to this leper. He's cleansed. And then Jesus gives these instructions to him. And, and Pastor Wargo, we got just about two minutes here before the break to try to kind of wrap this part up before we move on afterwards. Take us into the, mm-hmm. the cleansing and then what Jesus tells the man to do. So, yeah, so he is he is cleansed, right? By the word, by the touch, by, by Christ, he is, he is cleansed. And then, and then he does give this, this command where he says, you know, uh, say, say nothing to, to anyone uh, or see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And this is really interesting because, and this is similar then too with, uh, with the lepers in Luke, Luke 17. Uh, Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And so he does tell them to, to go and to, to do what Moses commanded, give the offering, show yourself to the priest. And that would, um, you know, the priest was the one to declare that man clean, right? And so that he could then come to the temple, that he could be in the community again. It was that priest. Priest didn't cleanse anybody. That's Christ that does it. But it is the um, the, the job of the priest to, to declare kind of objectively that these people are that these these uh, that these lepers then are are cleansed, um, and so uh, it's really uh, significant that Jesus tells him to, to continue to do that. Um, he also urges the man to silence. Um, uh, so so he says, "Go see that you tell no one," uh, and and Gibbs in his uh, Jeff Gibbs in his commentary proposes that this instance Jesus urges the man to silence so that he will go actually. Uh, keep the Mosaic law instead of, you know, going about and, and forgetting to do what, what Moses commanded uh, in, keeping, in keeping that. So I, I also think it could be an instance where Jesus is actually protecting uh, this leper uh, from kind of maybe harsh criticism or even threats. We see this in the case with Lazarus in John's Gospel. But um, gives us it this way. Perhaps a part of what is implied in Jesus' prohibition and command is the truth that Jesus doesn't need the leper to speak about what had happened, about Jesus' mighty deed, that Jesus' mighty deeds speak for themselves. That's kind of how Gibbs sums it up, if you will. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're looking at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Monday, February 3rd. We are studying Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17 with Pastor Sam Wergau of Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, prior to the break, we'd looked at those first four verses where Jesus cleanses a leper, presumably a, a Jewish leper, as, as the Mosaic law comes into play. Now, the next person to approach Jesus, it would seem, is, is not likely a Jew, but a Gentile. We we meet a centurion. Who who's this new person that's coming to Jesus now in verse five? 
Right. Great point to bring up that this is uh, uh, a Gentile, a centurion. Uh, you know, centurions were um, part of the uh, the Roman army. Uh, they were commanders, uh, and that's going to really come out when the centurion kind of gives a great example of the authority of God's word. But the centurion himself would have been a commander of about 80 to 100 men, uh, this time in the service of uh, Herod Antipas. Uh, and yeah, a Gentile, right? Which is a significance, uh, really, when we see his faith being marveled at by Jesus. And, and then Jesus really actually uh, shaming, if you will, the, the, the Jewish people who refuse to believe or receive him. So that'll come up here in just a minute. But, but, but this, this is significant that he is a leper. In fact, this, this reading um, in the one-year lectionary is, is set for the Epiphany season uh, and uh, the third Sunday uh, after the Epiphany. And we know the Epiphany season is, is about several things. It's about the manifestation of who Jesus is. But a big part of the Epiphany is about the, Jesus coming for the, for the Gentiles as well. And, and that really is kind of a major theme when we deal with the centurion and his, uh, his faith that, that he has. And so this centurion, this Gentile, and it, it's something, again, it, we, we tend to think of Matthew and the way that he shows Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the scriptures that were given to the people of Israel, and yet already in Matthew, so often we've seen Jesus already reaching Gentiles. You, you've got the Magi, you've got his his beginning of his ministry in, in Galilee of the Gentiles in Matthew chapter 4, and then right after the Sermon on the Mount, here's this, this Gentile centurion who comes to Jesus and addresses Jesus with the same title as the leper just did. Mm-hmm. The centurion calls him Lord. And so, again, I think we, we can take a look at, just as we did with the leper, the leper's faith. How do we see the centurion's faith here in this, this part of the text? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, you see it. Again, like the leper, he comes up to him, and, and, and um, the ESV translates it as he appeals to him. Uh, I think I think a better word is kind of exhorts him. Uh, it, it's the word parakaleo in the Greek, uh, which is where we get the word paraclete, right? But this idea of admonishing or exhorting, uh, appealing to is good too. But I, I think it's got we get this understanding that he is coming to Jesus in faith to to petition him. Now he doesn't actually make a request. Neither did the leper actually. If you picked up on that, they kind of just stated facts with the kind of implied. Uh, in their confession that the Lord will do what, 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 what needs to be done. And here too, as well, he says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He doesn't actually ask Jesus to come heal him. The idea here is tell Jesus the problem and, and, uh, and, and he'll take care of it. I think kind of understanding and, and, but he does, you're right. He does call him Lord uh, and he comes again in faith, and we'll see here the faith resting then in, in, in the word, because Jesus says, then, I will come and heal him, is how our ESV has that translated. There's some question here, and get, uh, Dr. Gibbs brings this up in his commentary as well, is perhaps that the, this, the Greek here could actually be translated as a question, and he might be saying, shall I myself come and heal him? Uh, I think either way, we get a good understanding of of. of Either way, interpreting as a question, translating as a question or not, we get the same end result in the idea that that Jesus um, uh, could go and could help, but the the centurion uh, could go and could heal, but the centurion 
confesses then in the face of that his actual unworthiness to have Jesus uh, come under his roof. Right. So just briefly, in, in the Greek text, there's no punctuation marks. And so sometimes it, it can—there's there, a question as to whether or not it is a statement or a question. And it, it, you kind of look at the context and, and what's going on. And as you said, Pastor Wargau, here in the ESV, it's translated a statement. And it certainly makes good sense that it would be a statement from Jesus. But it also could make good sense that it would be a question from Jesus. Again, as you pointed out, the centurion didn't actually ask Jesus. He simply has informed Jesus of what's going on. And so that Jesus might ask him a question, shall I come and heal him, would would fit the context. In, in either right, case, right. though, okay. you have this emphasis from Jesus. Jesus is offering or asking about Jesus actually coming. And the centurion mm-hmm. picks up on that in his answer. And that's where we really see the centurion's faith in Jesus is in this answer that he gives in verses 8 through 9. So, Pastor Wargo, take us into that answer from the centurion. Right, exactly. He says, Lord, again, that's that kurios word there, uh, kyrie, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Uh, So there, first of all, is the statement kind of of faith there, the first kind of response that he has, that he is, first of all, unworthy. Um, his confession to unworthiness, because he knows that's a confession to who Jesus is, right? Uh, the, the centurion wouldn't, I think, have a problem, uh, or, you know, wouldn't, he's kind of a high-ranking official in a certain sense, and now this this person that's a high-ranking official says that he's not worthy to have this Jewish teacher come under his roof, which, which is fascinating because it's a confession. There's something more to this Jesus than meets the eye. It's a confession of who he is. And Gibbs says here, he does not regard himself himself a Gentile sinner that he is to be worthy that the Lord, the, the Kyrie, should come under under his roof. And then he goes on more, though, to talk about in his confession why that, in fact, is not necessary. Now, we saw that Jesus can heal in, in, in several different ways, uh, kind of does what's best for the situation and for the person. Uh, and, and here, this confession is, simply that there is power, the power is really in the word. Uh, Only say the word and my servant will be healed, because then the centurion gives this great uh, analogy, if you will. He he gets what authority is about. He gets what words can accomplish, Uh, even in uh, the earthly sense uh, or in the civil sense, because he says then, uh, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So what do you see there? You see, you speak the word with authority, and that word carries the authority to accomplish what it says, right? And so because the centurion would speak with authority and say, go, the, um, the servant doesn't, doesn't stay. Say, sorry, the soldier doesn't stay then. He goes. And to another come, and he doesn't just stay there, he comes, right? Uh, the fact of the matter is, and what the centurion understands about the one in authority, that is the Messiah, Jesus, uh, that his word carries that authority to even command not even a, not just a servant or a slave but to or, or a soldier, but to command the uh, sickness, the paralysis, the even even death itself. It'll do what God says it will do. 
So the, the comparison is from the lesser to the greater. If the centurion's word can cause a servant to go do something, then surely how much more will the, the word of the Messiah, the Christ of God's own son, the word of the Lord, as the centurion names him, do what he says, even from a distance. And, and we still see this power of the word today. This is, this is a central part of, of our theology, isn't it, Pastor Wargo? Oh, exactly. Yes, exactly. Especially when we talk about means of grace, we talk about the word and the sacraments. We, when we talk about how is God working now and today according to his promises. And, and we always place the emphasis not on uh, anything else, but, but the word and the faith which receives it. And, and I mean, a couple examples that we have even in our uh, small catechism, and this is whenever Luther's talking about the sacraments, uh, he's talking about the word. So in baptism, he asked the question after establishing what baptism is and what it gives, how can it do that? How can baptism do such great things? How can water do such great things, I should say? Uh, how can it work forgiveness of sins? How can it do that? And Luther says, uh, uh, how can water do such th- great things? And he, he says, certainly not just water does these things, uh, but the word of God in and with the water does these things along with the faith which trusts the word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism, but with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. So, so why do we take such stock in these sacraments? Why do we just take uh, so, such stock in baptism to say that it does what it does? Well, it's not the water alone, but it's because God has attached his word, his authoritative word, which says, do this and it's done, even more greater than the, the authority of a centurion to his soldiers. Uh, that's why we can believe water does such great things. And that's the faith which trusts the word of God in the water. And he uses the same uh, sort of um, teaching concerning the word and faith when he t- t- talks about the Lord's Supper. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Well, certainly not just eating and drinking, Luther says in the small catechism, do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacraments. Whoever believes the words, there's that faith, faith trusts the word, has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. So, you know, again, these don't appear like great big miracles like healing a leper or curing a centurion servant who is lying uh, paralyzed and dying. But yet these are great miracles because this is what God is continuing to accomplish through his word, working the forgiveness of sins, rescuing from sin, death, and the power of the devil. Again, as we said at the beginning, when we see Jesus' word work, if you work, right, do what it says so visibly here, then that, that helps us to trust that his word is still doing what he says, even when we don't get to see it, right? It looks like plain water. It looks like bread and wine. But because we have the word of God, we know that in that water, there is true washing away of sins. And in the bread and wine, we don't only have bread and wine, but we have Christ's own true body and blood because we have the word. So, so the centurion, he, he gets this. <laughs> Which, mm-hmm. What's Jesus' response? Yeah, I think Jesus' response here is great. He marvels right? Now, this idea that he marveled, uh, this word for marvel is used a lot of times towards other events that surround Jesus. So the disciples marvel, we'll see that in 827 when Jesus uh, 
calms the storm. The disciples are going to marvel that he has this control over creation. Uh, or we have even in uh, Mary and Joseph in, in Luke's gospel, they marvel at uh, what Simeon in the temple says about Jesus. when he says this child, you know, he uh, sings the nook dimittis, the Lord now let us thou thy servant depart in peace. Uh, and there's other instances throughout the scripture where people are marveling about these events surrounding the life of Jesus, but there's only actually two instances. Uh, this account, both here and then also in Luke's gospel, the parallel account, uh, but then also where, where Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith, but then also in Mark 6, 6, he marvels at unbelief, okay? So that's kind of interesting to compare those two. But what the idea here is that, that, that Jesus is, is marveling because uh, he's standing in astonishment because this, this Gentile uh, has exhibited such faith, right, has exhibited this faith at, at uh, who Jesus is and what, what he has come to do. And then he says this, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Again, we talked about the significance of this centurion being a Gentile. And, and Jesus marveling is in part because this Gentile has exhibited a greater faith than the one to whom the promise was given, that is, to the people of Israel. And then that allows Jesus to, like I said, he kind of shames the, the people of Israel, but he also gives this great promise, this epiphany promise, that many are going to come from the east and the west, that, that there are going to be people from other nations, Gentile nations, uh, who are going to be brought into the kingdom, into sit at table or recline at table to have this communion, this fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the patriarchs in the kingdom uh, of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, the, 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 those who had, who had been promised to but who had rejected it because they had rejected Christ, are going to be thrown out uh, into the utter darkness. This is a, the instance where we see this happen throughout the Gospels, which Simeon talks about. Not to go back to Simeon again in Luke's Gospel, but Simeon says that Jesus is, is uh, uh, appointed as a, uh, uh, for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. So he's going to be the, kind of that fulcrum, if you will, and, and you're either going to uh, trip over him and fall, and be cast into utter darkness by rejecting who he is, or he's going to be the one that takes you and raises you up through faith in him uh, and, and, and brings you into the kingdom. Again, he is the way, the truth, and the life. It's through him that you're either cast into outer darkness by not receiving, by rejecting him, or you're brought into the kingdom by believing in him as the centurion did. So no longer a matter of uh, ethnicity or bloodline, but a matter of faith in the Christ. So Jesus preaches that sermon to those standing around watching, listening, this crowd that's there, and then he turns again to the, the centurion and actually delivers to the centurion the good news. What does he tell the centurion? Right. These words are so significant. Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Uh, I say these words are significant because they're actually our words, too. Uh, when we deal with things in particular like baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's done to us according to our belief. That is, we receive the benefits of these things through faith. Uh, and these words in particular are actually used in the um, service in our hymnal, uh, or the rite, I should say, in our hymnal of um, individual confession and absolution. And uh, in that rite, and that's on page 293 in the hymnal, uh, after the confession, the, the uh, a person confesses their sins, and, and the, uh, the pastor says, do you believe that my forgiveness is Christ's forgiveness? 
again, taking that from what we learned concerning the office of the keys concerning, you know, from John, from John 20 and the person responds, yes. And then it continues on, let it be. So uh, let it be done for you as you have believed. And then the, the absolution is given and again, received by, by faith and, and trusting in, in the word, which accomplishes the very forgiveness of sins uh, uh, in, in that right. Right. It's, it's a very similar answer as to what, I think, what he gave to the leper, too. He says, I will be clean. Here, he says, yes, leper, your, your faith is correct. Be clean to the centurion. Yes, your faith is correct. It is so, and and in fact, it is. The servant is healed at that very moment. You get this, it, the, at that very moment is, is another parallel, I think. You, immediately, the leprosy was cleansed. The servant was healed at that very moment, that, that Jesus' word is effective immediately. So then, Pastor Wargau, just so we, we keep moving and, and get through that, we've got just under nine minutes left, and we've got these three verses left, including that, that Isaiah quotation, which is very significant. We've, we referenced it already, so I want to make sure we get to it. We, we see Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's come down from the mountain. He's gone into Capernaum, his, his hometown, and now he's actually going into Peter's house. What, what happens there when Jesus goes into Peter's house? Right, so he goes into Peter's house, and Peter has a mother-in-law, uh, who's lying sick with a fever, we're told in particular. Now, there's not a lot here, uh, like you have with the other ones, about, I guess, uh, uh, what's leading up to the action, right? So, so we don't get anything about uh, a petitioning or an asking. Not to say that that might not have happened, either from Peter himself, for his mother-in-law, or, or from the mother-in-law. Um, but there isn't like you know this this uh, all the all the stuff we have that comes before it like we did with the leper coming up and worshiping Jesus and and making this statement or the centurion making such a great confession, but here we simply have the mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever, and Jesus touches her hand and the fever leaves her, uh, and she rises and begins to serve. Now I want to talk a little bit about the rising and beginning to serve here in just a second, which I think is important. But but, but even before that, we see again, it's kind of neat if you're comparing all three of these now. Jesus might have said something that Matthew doesn't record, but as for what Matthew has recorded, for the leper, he speaks and he touches. For the centurion, he's not there, but he speaks his word, and that authoritative word does what it says, and the servant's healed at that very moment. With the mother-in-law, he doesn't say anything, but he touches, uh, and then she rises, and then she begins to serve, which I think is great, and it's a great analogy we have even to our service. Uh, if, if we take this, if we, if we understand that Jesus healing us, uh, not necessarily though he does, of our physical ailments or diseases, which allow us then to, to serve others, but even that Jesus gives us that healing through the forgiveness of sins, which we've already been talking about with baptism, with the Lord's Supper, with, with the absolution. Jesus heals our sins, and then what is our response to that? We serve. Now, we serve him, but we serve him by serving our neighbor. Uh, we go about our vocations. We we go about in, uh, as we say in the uh, the pretty famous uh, post-communion collect uh, that that we live in faith to God and in fervent love to one another. That through those means, through through the forgiveness we receive in the Holy Supper and the strengthening of our faith, we then go forth and and live in love and forgiveness to one another. Peter's. The, the response of Peter's mother-in-law, I, I think, is is your right to point out its significance. And two, again, as, as Matthew records it for us, the the different ways that Jesus heals, and this maybe isn't this is is perhaps a bit speculative because 
we don't know exactly why Matthew recorded it that way, but I, I do think you, you might say that we're reminded that this isn't Jesus just sort of repeating some kind of magic formula or going through certain motions that work every time or something like that. Rather, this is Jesus' own divine power doing what he says it will do according to his own will and, and to fulfill what has been spoken about him through the prophet Isaiah, which is where Matthew is, is going to take us. He moves now from these three specific healings into a more general description of what Jesus is doing with his healing. And he says all of this is done to fulfill this quotation from, from Isaiah 53. And I think we, we need, we've got five minutes, and that's where we want to spend our time, Pastor Wargo. Right. Now, this is just beautiful because, again, I think it relates not simply— well, I mean, how we kind of close this out is great. We have, the three, we have the three specific examples with the details, but then it kind of ends with there were lots of people uh, that brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed their sick. So we're, we're not even recording these specific events, and this happens throughout Matthew or any, all the evangelists, where there's just instances where we have lots of people coming and Jesus performing lots of miracles, right, doing lots of things for the people with the same purpose and with the same result that was for the specific cases of the leper, the centurion servant, or Peter's mother-in-law. And that is, again, um, the breaking in of the Christ into a sinful fallen world to begin restoring it. But how does he do it? Well, what does Isaiah say that he's doing? He says that he has uh, took our illnesses, bore our diseases. Now, that's part of the, the, the servant song of, of Isaiah uh, in, uh, in, in Isaiah. Um, I'm blanking on it now. 43. <laughs> 43. 53. Uh, 53. 50, 53. Sorry. Yeah. It's all good. Uh, and, and so what's important to understand here is that this isn't just a matter of oh, Jesus needs to check out all, off all these prophecies, but this is how God, what God said the Messiah would be doing in Isaiah, but even go back even to the Proto-Evangelion, or the, the first gospel of, of, of Genesis 3. I mean, this is crushing the servant's head. This is dealing with sin in part here, but what we ultimately see fulfilled then by his death and his resurrection. Uh, finally overcoming and conquering this. But, but right now in his earthly ministry, he's doing it. He's taking on the sins. Again, he's, he's touching lepers. He's taking on our infirmities. And, he, and, and from his baptism on, he's bearing all of those infirmities to take them and to pay for them, to, to deal with them ultimately in the cross. And that's why then this has everything to do with us. Because these, these miracles we can always think are, oh, these are great. These are nice. Jesus is pretty powerful, but what does it have to do with me? Well, he's bore our illnesses. Uh, he's took our illnesses. He's bore our diseases, ultimately, not simply with the symptoms of leprosy or paralysis or fever, but with the root cause of all of that in sin. By conquering sin, by winning the victory, uh, by his death, upon the cross. And I love, you brought it up earlier uh, when dealing with the resurrection, because I think that's so significant to this whole conversation. Because historically, the leper cleansed, great, lived for a number more years and died. Same thing with the centurion servant. Same thing with Peter's mother-in-law. They're no longer along, around us. Even those who Jesus raised from the dead, like Lazarus, he's no longer here. He died. Those miracles were significant, but they were all 
foreshadowing and pointing to ultimately what Christ accomplished by his death and his resurrection, and which we now look forward to, because we lie in the midst of sin, uh, sickness, and death. But we know that the one who healed lepers, the one who um, uh, performed all these miracles, but who ultimately bore our infirmities and our sicknesses, even to death on the cross, has accomplished everything, and he has risen again, the first fruits of the leper, the first fruits of the uh, servant uh, of the centurion, the first fruits of Peter's mother-in-law, and the first fruits of you and me, who, though we deal with, with sin, with sickness, and with death in our lives, ultimately our hope is on that resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Pastor Sam Wergau is the pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Pastor Wergau, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Jesus has carried our illnesses. He has borne our diseases. He has taken those effects of our sin with him to the cross. He has died for them there. And as the first fruits, he has risen from the dead, the hope of our resurrection too, so that when we are sick, when our bodies get frail, when our bodies even die, we know that that is not the end, but that on the last day, Christ will return. He will raise us from the dead along with the leper, along with the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law with all Christians throughout the ages. He will raise us from the dead. He will give us the fullness of his victory in the resurrection and the life of the world to come. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.